0: Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you are enjoying this new season of the show, where we connect college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in college. Today I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Corey Shockey and Executive Council student Caleb Sampson on Russia's war in Ukraine and the risks and strategies of nuclear conflict. But before I turn it over to Caleb, I want to let you know that we just launched the application for AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is really our flagship opportunity for students to engage with our think tank, and it takes place each June. Summer Honors is a time where students have the opportunity to come to Washington, D.C., all expenses paid, for a week of seminar discussions with our nation's leading experts, like Dr. Shockey, who is teaching a course for us this next June titled Thinking About War. In addition to diving into topics like war, the promise of American pluralism, the challenges posed by technology, and the morality of capitalism, students will get to meet and engage with other students from across the country and ideological spectrum. To learn more and apply to AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program, just check out the link in our show notes. And to stay most up to date with all of our work here at AEI, consider joining our year-round Executive Council Program. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode of the Campus Exchange. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Thank you, Jeff. My name is Caleb Sampson, and I'm a junior at Hillsdale College studying politics, specifically American government and political theory. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Corey Shockey. Dr. Shockey is a senior fellow and the director of foreign and defense policy studies here at the American Enterprise Institute. Before joining AEI, she was the deputy director general of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. She has had a distinguished career in government as well, working at the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense and the National Security Council at the White House. Dr. Shockey has a PhD and MA in government and politics from the University of Maryland, as well as an MPM from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Her BA in international relations is from Stanford University. This past summer, I had the privilege to study under Dr. Shockey when she taught a summer honors course about war and military strategy at AEI. It's great to see you again, Corey, and thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, I'm looking forward to the
1: conversation, Caleb. I am as well. So the first question we have for you today is about nuclear weaponry. How did the emergence of nuclear weapons change traditional conceptions of warfare? Or in other words, how did events like the Manhattan Project, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, American nuclear testing, and the Cuban Missile Crisis change the modern state of international conflict?
2: I love that question because it really did create a step change in thinking about war To for the most powerful states in the international order to have the ability to commit such enormous destruction in a single decision and at speed. And um, there was a very rocky 15 years or so as the United States and the Soviet Union tested the limits of nuclear strategy, of nuclear threats. Um, And what emerged after the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in 1961 was what we think of as the balance of terror, namely both countries having the ability to do such enormous destruction to each other strangely stabilized the risks of war between the strongest powers in the international order, because war had become so destructive with thousands of nuclear weapons in great power arsenals, that it made war less likely among the strongest powers in the international order, which is anomalous historically. Um, So the extent of damage weirdly stabilized relationships between the strongest powers in the international order. But it's important to remember, it took 15 years of crises before the strongest powers worked that out and had sufficiently tested each other's interests and the limits of each other's interests to understand what each would risk nuclear war in order to protect or achieve.
1: Very interesting. Uh, Given that those most powerful nations are the ones that possess nuclear weapons and developed nuclear arsenals over the course of the last few decades, I'd like to talk about today and mention the status quo of nuclear weaponry. So there are currently nine nation states that possess active nuclear weapons. America, Russia, China, France, the UK, Israel, India, Pakistan, and North Korea what do the various nuclear arsenals of these powerful nations look like and which nuclear capable nations are the most powerful?
2: So it used to be the case that the size of the U.S. and Russian arsenals were so enormous that, that they were in a category by themselves, that China, the U.K. and France, for instance, had minimal deterrence. So nuclear forces, nuclear weapons, of the the number that their strategy was to prevent an attack on their country. Whereas for the United States and the Soviet and Russia, those nuclear arsenals were thought to have extended deterrence to their allies. Namely, you couldn't attack Germany without risking an American nuclear response. And the United States couldn't endanger the Soviet Union and then Russia's core interests and core allies without running that risk. And what we are seeing now is Russia, with a much smaller arsenal and a much weaker conventional military, attempting to preserve the gains of its aggression in Ukraine by threatening nuclear attacks on Ukraine, on Europe, and on the United States. And it is um, a very positive development for nuclear deterrence and for preventing proliferation of nuclear arsenals to other countries that the United States and its 29 NATO allies and the government of Ukraine are not allowing themselves to be deterred from continuing assistance to Ukraine, despite those improbable, but still um, you know, consequential Russian nuclear
1: threats. Well, I'd like to shift focus and talk about those Russian nuclear threats specifically uh, in the context of what may be the world's most pressing foreign policy concern, the Russo-Ukrainian war. Over the course of the past few months, the Russian army has suffered extensive losses at the hands of a Ukrainian army equipped with American weaponry, just like you just said. At the inception of the war back in February, it looked like Russia had a more formidable, more well-equipped army than experience has shown. Why is the Russian army failing?
2: Oh, I love that question. And first of all, Uh, I love the way you set it up, Caleb. That's a really smart assessment of what's going on. And you're exactly right. I don't know a national security expert who anticipated the Russian military being this bad. We were all stunned um, because, and and I think the honest truth is that it's very hard to tell how good an army is until you fight it right? Because um, uh, as no less a source than um, Patrick Henry said, the battle goes not always to the strong or the race always to the swift, but to the most dedicated, the most committed. Uh, And that's what we're seeing. We are seeing a Russian army that's shockingly improficient at basic soldiering skills Um, And a Ukrainian army so motivated to fight for their homes and their freedom that they're creative, they work as a team, they are uh, using every advantage available to them, whereas the Russian army is now having to situate soldiers at the back to threaten to kill their own soldiers if they retreat. That tells you everything about the state of the Russian military. And the Ukrainians are tactically and operationally incredibly smart. So instead of fighting a Russian unit head on, they'll cut off its supplies. Um, And so the Russians run out of weapons and have to retreat. So what we are seeing is Russia was thought to be a military power, the peer of the United States or its NATO allies. And it turns out it's not even the best army in the former Soviet Union. It has collapsed the belief that it was a major military. It is now one, losing a war to Ukraine, which means it would easily lose a war to the NATO allies, and to the United States. They've collapsed the belief that they are a great power.
1: Given that collapse in belief, given that Russia is weaker than one may have assumed even just eight months ago, and given the commitment of the Ukrainian army, I wanna talk about America's response. In a recent op-ed with The Atlantic, you argued that President Biden was wrong to compare the Russian nuclear threat to the Cuban Missile Crisis during a private gathering with Democratic donors. Why, in your opinion, was this an overreaction? And what would be the best way for the American government to demonstrate strength in the face of a potential Russian nuclear threat?
2: I'm impressed by your background research, Caleb. Thank you for doing that. Thank Uh, you. So the reason I think the president was mistaken uh, to make the comparison to the Cuban Missile Crisis is that was a direct U.S.-Soviet conflict, where the Soviet Union was installing nuclear weapons 90 miles off America's coast at a time where the other means of delivery of those weapons were more suspect and more easily targeted. So it was a direct threat to the United States that the American government was willing to risk war with the Soviet Union in order to prevent So a direct threat to the United States, a direct conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. What we are looking at in Ukraine is more akin to a proxy war, where we are not combatants. We are arming and assisting the war effort of a country that uh, is in the Western sphere of influence, that the Russia. What Russia is attempting to do is not only erase Ukrainian national identity, but to erase the rules of international order that the United States and its allies have promulgated, which the fundamental rule of which is that boundaries only change by negotiation between consenting parties. They can't change by force. So a better parallel, actually, would be the Gulf War of 1991, where the United States orchestrated an enormous international effort to assist the liberation of a country that had been invaded and by an aggressor that was attempting to overturn the rules that have made the international order so safe and prosperous since 1945. To answer your second question about if the president's going to talk about these things, uh, he ought actually to explain to the American people what he's doing, what risks we are running so that he has educated consent um, and support from the American people. The worst way to talk about, gee, we could be risking a nuclear war is to do it at a private fundraiser for partisan political purposes, because that encourages politicization of the cause in a way that's actually not in the president's own interests. But second of all, um, we're the strong ones in this equation. And the president sounding scared that the war could escalate encourages nuclear blackmail, It encourages nuclear proliferation because a Russia whose army is being defeated by Ukraine is demonstrating it can deter the United States, um, frighten the president, the leader of the free world. And that's a terrible message for the president to send. And it's inaccurate because the Ukraine war, uh, tragic as it is for the people of Ukraine, Um, is actually strengthening the West and strengthening the United States because the Ukrainians, in their bravery, are destroying the Russian threat to all of us. And the solidarity of the West in supporting them is reminding us all that when things get scary, it's nice to have your friends standing shoulder to shoulder, and it's nice to have your friends be strong and capable as our friends are.
1: Absolutely, that makes sense. I wanna combine two of the ideas that we've been talking about. On one hand, nuclear proliferation and weapons use, and on the other, Russia's weakness and Ukraine's comparative strength. Is there a connection between a failing military campaign and nuclear escalation? Or in other words, as Putin faces the growing possibility of losing the war in Ukraine, do you believe that there will be an increased risk of a nuclear attack on a target such as Kiev? If so, is that attack at all likely?
2: So I don't think that attack is very likely, but I do think we should be worried about it and should be taking, making policy choices that diminish its likelihood even further precisely for the logic that you outlined, Caleb, which is that nuclear weapons have been historically and are currently a substitute for conventional forces. You know, the United States developed a large nuclear arsenal in the 1940s and 1950s, because we thought the Soviet military and the Warsaw Pact militaries would overwhelm the Western powers' ability to defend ourselves with conventional forces. The balance shifts in the 1980s when, uh, you know, after a period in the 1950s and 60s, where Western countries simply did not want to afford to build militaries of the size that could conventionally counter the Warsaw Pact threats. So we substituted nuclear for conventional in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But by the 70s and 80s, our power was so much greater than the Soviet Union's and the political reliability of the Warsaw Pact so questionable that it was the Soviet Union that relied more heavily on nuclear threats. And actually, you see the emergence of an enormous... And rapidly growing Chinese nuclear force, I think in part because they lack confidence they could win a conventional war against the United States and its allies in the Pacific. So they're commonly substitutes or your nuclear force is an insurance policy against your conventional forces failing to achieve your political objectives in war.
1: Given that nuclear force could be used when you fail to achieve those traditional military objectives, whether it's Russia or whether it's China, how can the United States signal that there will be consequences if these nations use nuclear force?
2: That is exactly the right policy question. Three cheers for you, Caleb. Um, So I'll tell you what my nightmare scenario is which is that as the russian army is defeated and driven out of ukraine vladimir putin and the russian leadership attempt to create the fiction of success by using a nuclear by attacking the ukrainian capital of kiev with nuclear weapons in order to claim that they had achieved the regime change they invaded Ukraine to accomplish. I don't see a plausible case for battlefield nuclear use because Ukraine isn't concentrating large conventional forces. They're not utterly reliant on a small number of ports or um, airfields, the kinds of things that make productive battlefield nuclear targets. Um, And and so a symbolic target that allows Russia to pretend it achieved its, its objectives seems to me the nightmare we should be preparing for. And I'm so impressed by the courage of the Ukrainian people. I was in Kiev in September, and President Zelensky, business leaders, civil society leaders, to a person their reaction to that Russian threat was it will not change the outcome of the war. And that's the most important deterrent that we can put forward for all of us to have the courage of the Ukrainians and say, even use of a nuclear weapon for the first time since 1945 with the enormous destruction and murder it would create will not allow Russia to achieve its political objectives. And that should be coupled with clear and repeated statements, both in public and in private, that if we see the Russians moving to use a nuclear weapon, we will give Ukraine the intelligence and the weapons to preempt its use. That is to attack the Russian unit's that are handling the weapons and preparing to use it. We will remove any remaining restrictions on Ukraine's ability to attack the Russian homeland. We will um, hunt down and either kill or bring to justice every Russian policymaker and military and soldier who's involved in the decision or the execution of the order. And what those do is make clear what the consequences will be for Russia, make clear that they cannot win the war, even by escalating, and send a message to North Korea, Iran, and other threshold states that it is not the weapon that is going to achieve your political objectives. So it will diminish the likelihood of nuclear proliferation by saying the weapon doesn't matter It's the political objectives that we are going to fight for.
1: That absolutely makes sense. Clear consequences, strong deterrence, and ultimately the political objectives not being the same thing as the nuclear destruction. Dr. Shaki, we really appreciate your observations about Ukraine and nuclear weaponry. But before we go, I have one final question which we ask all of our guests. What do you know now that you wish you knew back when you were in college?
2: I love that question. Um, And my answer is that failure, repeated failure, is essential for success. What I wish I knew when I was in college was that I was going to fail a lot in the course of a successful career. And Uh, It's not the getting knocked down. It's the getting back up that makes for success. I have run my ship aground so many times um, and getting seaworthy again and making the kind of connections to people who understand that even if you make a mistake, it's it's not the end of your career, that it just means you need to dust yourself off and find another way to get what it is you want. What I notice about the students I have taught at Stanford and other places is that they're fearful that a single mistake will derail them. And it's just not true. Take the kinds of risks that push your talents to the edge of failure and trust that you'll be able to fix the mistakes that you
1: make. That's excellent advice. Dr. Shockey, thank you for your time and It was a pleasure to see you again.
2: It was a really fun conversation, Caleb. Thank you.
1: Of course.
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.